understand Spanish, don't worry, you can practice a little bit with me. I invite you to listen to my show, Contragolpe. Credibility, facts, analysis, debate, and intense dialogue. Contragolpe, part of the new and exciting lineup, Wednesday nights. The benefits of donating your used vehicle to KPFK include funding new and existing programming as well as increasing community awareness. You also benefit by being able to reduce your taxable income. There's no need to deal with the hassles of selling it and you support public radio in the process. To donate your vehicle, please call 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO. You're listening to KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, and 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake. Good afternoon, KPFK listeners. This is Here in the City. Today is January 24th, 2011. I'm Sarah Harris. We are here most Mondays on KPFK, bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape and profiles of people working toward creative social change in Los Angeles. On the program today, we're going to take a trip to the corner of Hoover and Jefferson for an interview about a new report that looks at collaboration among grassroots groups working toward progressive social change. When you're doing this fight, it's motivating to see that it's just not you and your own community doing this work, but you're actually connected to something larger. And we preview a touring film series and new book about radical cinema in San Francisco. The Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, has, I think, in the imagination and in reality as well, really for much of this uh, last century, been kind of almost a mecca for people who are naturally rebellious and wanting to start their own uh, perhaps alternative lifestyle. But for some news... In international news, an explosive device filled with metal pieces and a force equal to several hundred, several pounds of dynamite exploded at a crowded arrivals terminal at Domodovedo International Airport near Moscow today. Russian officials estimate that the blast killed at least 31 people and wounded another 150. Russian authorities are calling the attack a terrorist act, and the Interfax agency says law enforcement is looking for three suspects. Russian President Dmitry Medvedev canceled the trip to the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. In national news, an Illinois appeals court ruled today that former White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel does not qualify to run for mayor of Chicago next month. Opponents say Emanuel doesn't meet the one-year residency requirement because of his tenure in Washington. He has won previous rulings on the issue in Cook County Circuit Court. Emanuel told a news conference that he would appeal the decision to the Illinois Supreme Court and would ask for an injunction to place his name on the ballot in the February 22nd election.
Tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, President Barack Obama delivers his second State of the Union address. White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs said that the president will ask lawmakers to, quote, have a debate that is appropriate to the size of the challenges that we face in this country. The president is expected to talk about the war in Afghanistan, strategic arms treaties, and the national deficit. And in local news, one man was killed and another injured in two separate shootings early this morning in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. Police with the Rampart Division were investigating whether the shootings were gang-related. The victims' names have not yet been released. The Los Angeles Times Online compiled a coroner's data that estimate at least 105 homicides have been reported within two miles of Monday's shooting since January 2007. This is Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, and 99.5 FM Ridgecrest, China Lake. An archive of our shows is available at hereinthecity.org, and you can be our fan on Facebook. This is Here in the City. I'm Sarah Harris, and I'm at the Program for Environmental and Regional Equity, which researches and facilitates discussions on environmental justice and social movement building. The program is based at the University of Southern California and is trying to forge, in their words, a new model of how university and community can work together for the common good. And I'm here with Jennifer Ito to talk about a new study that the program has released, which is called... Connecting at the Crossroads, Alliance Building and Social Change in Tough Times. Jennifer, thank you so much for inviting us. Of course, thank you. Um, so the, the report, just to be clear, was authored by yourself and... Manuel Pastor, who's the director here at PEER, as well as Rhonda Ortiz. So my first question is, in the opening of the study, you write, the economy remains stagnant and a conservative wave has captured the attention of media and voters. Now more than ever, alliances of progressive grassroots organizations that are deeply rooted, broadly intersectional, and highly effective are critical for building and sustaining a movement for social equity. So here we are at a point where the recession is pretty much entrenched and states are cutting back on social services. And at a time like this, the gap between rich and poor is clearly growing. Why is this a crossroads? And how are the organizations that you and your fellow researchers connected with working to bring the issue of social equity to the forefront of the public conversation? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things is, you know, we started by thinking about where we were about two years ago. The 2008 election of now President Barack Obama. Just at that time, you could feel this huge energy um, of hope, of change. Um, community organizing was part of the mainstream vernacular at that time. The whole campaign itself had mobilized a, a new set of actors into the political arena. They're younger, predominantly people of color. And so there was this whole wave um, that when we started 
talking about, okay, well, where are we now two years later? It's drastically different. Um, you know, we progressives two years ago thought it was our time. Well, it's actually, here we are with the Tea Partiers and this wave of backlash um, that we're facing. And so I think we, we wanted to highlight, well, there's this whole actually undercurrent that's been happening that's bubbling up from communities like here in South LA, um, where there are organizations that are kind of undergirding um, the social change, and it's coming up from the grassroots up. You worked with more about 30 different organizations to produce the report, and um, you also had, I guess, a like a meeting where some of the leaders came together. And can you give us an idea of who it is that you spoke to nationwide and then um, here in Los Angeles as well? Sure, of course. And so our focus was to work was um, to look at organizations that are working. Um, that are organizing in low-income communities of color. I mean, there's we looked at alliances that are working, that are predominantly led by independent grassroots base-building organizations um, that are working across with labor unions, with other communities, across geographies, across different constituencies that are look, working with African Americans, Latinos, Muslim communities, um, that are working across issues of health care, foster care, immigration, um, but that are deeply rooted in those communities that are most impacted by the foreclosures, by service cuts. Um, by the economic fallout that we're seeing right now. And so we wanted to really, we thought it was most important to lift up these efforts because these are the communities that are suffering the most, that have the most at stake, um, but that are also forging this new way of working across place people and skills that are really having some impact. We're talking to Jennifer Ito at the Program for Environmental and Regional Equity. And on here in the city, we focus on equality and social change in the urban space. And I'm interested in some of the work that you also did with the California Alliance, which, as you describe in the report, is made up of members who represent, quote, a broad swath of California's low-income communities of color. Jennifer, can you give us an idea of what some of the goals of the California Alliance are and which groups are involved? Sure. And so they are, their goal is to... One of the alliances that we lifted up in this report was the California Alliance, which I now believe that they're called California Calls. They represent a total of almost 30 different community labor and service groups across 10 different counties in California. Their goal is to build a strong grassroots movement of new constituencies and a new coalition with the power to actually get at the heart of addressing the state's budget gridlock. There are groups that wage a myriad of campaigns at the local level, um, ranging from foster care to immigrant rights, education, jobs. But they realize that at the heart of all of their fights is the need for public funds and that you can't get quality health care, quality education. um, You can't create the jobs that are needed if you're dealing in a state that has a 24 billion dollar deficit. And so they realize that this is an issue that it benefits them to work collectively 
rather than to be fighting independent campaigns. Um, there's one alliance that you look at in your study, which is also not a one-off, obviously, but is centered on one specific issue, which is Arizona's SB 1070. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, which is the inter-alliance dialogue. The Inter-Alliance Dialogue is a national alliance of national alliances. Um, so that includes the Grassroots Global Justice Alliance, Jobs with Justice, the National Day Laborers Organizing Network, um, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Pushback Network, and the Right to City Alliance. They came out of the United States Social Forum process in 2007. And out of that convening started a conversation about trying to form a united national front. The leadership of these different alliances had been working formally and informally for a decade. They had gone through kind of a strategic planning process, and then boom, the economic recession happened. And all of a sudden, the our organizations were struggling. Um, with even to keep their doors open. So Endalon, the National Day Labor Organizing Network, had already been working in Arizona and had a network across the state of working on immigrant rights issues. Um, so they had already established, you know, they already had a community base, had established relationships with state and local um, leadership in these communities. In response to the legislation, interalliance dialogue and organizers, volunteers from alliances from all different parts of the country came and consolidated their resources and realized that this was an issue where they could actually have some impact, where it was critical um, for groups, even if immigrant rights wasn't their primary issue. And did you ask organizations about why or how they approached that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think one of, I mean, the one of the critical things is that the leadership um, of these different alliances, uh, of course, they they understood the importance and the significance of it, um, and they saw the potential of, for example, we talked to the executive director of Jobs with Justice and immigrant rights isn't one of their core issues. Um, they, and, But she said that the value for their membership was that it was an opportunity to get educated about what SB 1070 was, what the impact is on immigrants, so that they could bring that back um, to their own community and get more educated on that. Um, and then secondly, it's also motivating to see that you're part of this larger struggle with other organizers, with other active residents um, as well is when you're doing this fight, it's motivating to see that it's just not you and your own community doing this work, but you're actually connected to something larger. Which shouldn't be undervalued. It's a really important thing to have. Exactly. Exactly. FM in Los Angeles and at kpfk.org. You can find out more about Here in the City on our Facebook page and at our website, hereinthecity.org. I'm Sarah Harris. We'll be back with more radio realities from the urban landscape.
If you heard this morning's Democracy Now!, you know that Amy Goodman interviewed actor Danny Glover about his days as a community organizer in San Francisco during the Black Power Movement. For this next segment, we're going to the cinema space of San Francisco, which has long been a hotbed of alternative arts production as well as radical politics. A collaborative team of three media curators, Steve Side, Kathy Garretts, and Steve Anker, recently completed an ambitious historical survey of experimental film and video from the Bay Area. Their research project, called Radical Light, has led to both a publication with the University of California Press and to a touring film program. Our arts editor, Jesse Lerner, caught up with two of the curators when they were in Los Angeles this past week. My name is Kathy Garretts, and I'm a curator at Pacific Film Archive up in Berkeley. I'm Steve Anker, and I'm the dean of the School of Film and Video at CalArts. I wanted to start by asking a little bit about the specifics of place as expressed in experimental media arts. I'm thinking in relationship to David James's most typical avant-garde, and uh, last fall there was a conference at USC, the Alternative Projections, where there was a lot of exploration of this relationship between alternative media in Southern California, its relationship to the industry and to the landscape. And it seems like what you're doing really complements nicely that pair of projects. There's a very sort of regional specificity about each of them. How does that express itself in the Bay Area? Well, part of the reason we started the project uh, was that there hadn't been that much historical work or recovery work done on um, the history of experimental film in the Bay Area and until David James did his great book in Los Angeles. As, you know, a lot more attention had been on um, artists who worked in the um, New York area. So part of it for us was to uncover a history. Uh, another part for us was to create a model for what it was to dive deeply, vertically, into a regional a region uh, so that other places could also use that concept. So we tried to take a really broad notion of what happened in the Bay Area. So we looked at artists who came through, artists who lived there, various institutions, for example, venues that showed work, uh, venues that eventually arose to distribute work, and the schools um, that produced, say, the next generation of uh, film and video makers that were making work in the area or going to other areas. And so we found in our region that there was a really interesting mesh between those aspects that um, artists who made work and then decided to start a venue to, in order to show their work, and that led perhaps at some points to distribution of the work, to get it out more. Um, and so the arc we looked at was from the 40s to 2000, and a reoccurring theme during that whole period was having an interesting intermix of those things. Steve um, uh, worked on the landscape show that we did, so you might have something more about the actual region. Well, California, of course, has been a region which has only been lately populated by non-indigenous people, and so it's uh, really attracted for the last 150 or so years, uh, people who were uh, interested in relocating, shedding themselves of the past, uh, dreamers, 
uh, in some cases, uh, outcasts. Um, and perhaps uh, the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, has, I think, in the imagination and in reality as well, uh, really for much of this uh, last century, uh, been kind of almost a mecca uh, for people who are naturally rebellious and wanting to start their own uh, perhaps alternative lifestyle. And I think uh, that the three of us, uh, being curators in the Bay Area for many years, uh, sank, as Kathy was just saying, more and more deeply into discovering and understanding what a rich repository in the world of media, especially uh, film and video. Uh, heritage, you know, there has been starting really in the 19th century, uh, but then really picking up in the mid-20th century of individualists, iconoclasts, people who really were trying to make their own work very uh, individualistically. You're series starts in the 1940s, and it seems like there are a number of um, significant events and cultural movements that take place there. The San Francisco Museum of Modern Art has the art and film series. The San Francisco Art Institute has a series of workshops. And, of course, the Bay Area is really ground zero for beat movement, poetics, this emergent counterculture. Can you talk a little bit about the landscape of experimental film in the Bay Area around the middle of the 20th century? I'll start with the mid-40s that you began with. Um, There was a fascinating figure, Frank Stoffacher, who was a um, graphic designer and approached the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, as you mentioned, about taking on a film series. And at various times, other interesting people assisted him, including the uh, animator, filmmaker, musicologist, um, Harry Smith. His project was just um, really uh, fascinating in that he, at a time when there weren't like you know emails and even telephone calls were expensive, wrote letters, sent telegrams, and collected um, experimental cinema from around the world going usually directly to the filmmakers. Uh, There was a little bit of distribution like Museum of Modern Art in New York in order to to present that work in um, a museum setting, you know, film as a 20th century art form, and to introduce people to um, very specific histories. So he curated his programs. You know, there'd be one on, you know, experimental animation. There'd be one on the precursors, for example, um, turn-of-the-century experiments like Melies, or there'd be uh, one on the um, 1920s Europeans. And so people who went to those screenings, would they bought a subscription, so it'd be for a whole year, and they wouldn't really know what they were coming to see. So some of them would be museum-goers, but others were just interested people who, like, we've, we know, like, for example, that Jordan Belson was a student at UC Berkeley and started going to those screenings, or people like Harry Smith. And some people had a penchant already for creative exploration and other forms and thought, okay, I'll try film. And so the series itself began producing the first generation of filmmakers in um, the Bay Area. There's another uh, avenue that also was cre- creating filmmakers, which is um, the amateur film club movement, which was very strong in the Bay Area beginning in the 30s. And there's a number of filmmakers who kind of cross from seeing themselves as amateurs who begin also showing at um, Stoffucker's art and cinema series. It's kind of like emergence of a movement. They start shifting from seeing themselves as an amateur to seeing themselves as an artist. Um, and then things change a little bit in the 1950s when become much more 
uh, interdisciplinary between artists. But um, maybe, Steve, you'd like to talk about that. So really, San Francisco became in the 50s and then in the 60s again a real place in which young people especially could come and uh, do what they would like, you know, uh, and live very differently than they might have, you know, where they came from, the Midwest, the East, perhaps Europe. Uh, So really, starting in the 50s, uh, you had uh, sometimes uh, people just having moved there, sometimes people who, like Sidney Peterson, uh, grew up here, uh, really trying to do very different kinds of things with film. Uh, and that often meant intersecting with other kinds of revolutionary artists of the period, uh, in some cases working with poetry, other cases music or painting. Um, one of the films which uh, will be shown at the Red Cat from the early 1950s is by Christopher McLean, and it's called The End. And uh, he himself was a very uh, well-known uh, although kind of an enfant terrible figure, a poet in North Beach in the early 1950s. And he made his first film, which was an extraordinary, uh, complex, and very radical in its use of storytelling and narrative series of portraits of some of his beat friends uh, from that period. And it's also an incredible portrait of, uh, of a 50s Cold War America. shall meet the cast. Observe them well. See if they are not yourselves. And if you find none of them to be so, then insert yourself into this review. And uh, people like Christopher McLean, Lawrence Jordan, uh, Jordan Belson, uh, were interested in trying things with film that they had never seen done before. And they were being inspired and also working with other radical artists from that uh, post-war and uh, Cold War era, 1950s uh, San Francisco. Uh, And this kind of energy uh, sustained, really, uh, because uh, Kathy also mentioned this landscape program. You know, in San Francisco, uh, in some ways, is a landscape of the mind, but it's also a place of constant change. Uh, Physically, it's a place in which almost from one neighborhood to the next, sometimes one block to the next, you don't know what the vista is going to be like. You've got these hills, you've got sometimes fog coming and going. Uh, It's almost psychologically and physically a place of unpredictability. So by the 1960s, of course, it became a mecca for young people. You know, and this wonderful spirit of revolution and discovery is all over all those films from that uh, from that period. There's also a program of more recent work, right, of films from the 1980s and 1990s, and some of the filmmakers that coming out of the art schools in the region. People like Scott Stark and Colleen Smith, Dominique Gondarami who are all very active today as um, media artists. Can you talk a little bit about the contemporary scene in the in the Bay Area? It's really in the last 30 years, or let's say the last 20 years in which the book covers from 1980 through 2000, it was a period in which a good percentage, perhaps the majority of emerging filmmakers, in fact, had learned about independent and experimental film from 
filmmakers or curators in schools. Uh, and by that point, there really had already uh, been a tradition, you know, that again had started perhaps uh, at least in the Bay Area in the 40s, but had been decades old. Um, so they had uh, absorbed, they came of age by absorbing wonderful work by people like Bruce Connor or Bruce Bailey. Um, and yet there they are, younger people working with a medium, you know, and within a form which itself is identified in a lot of ways with the radical 50s and 60s. And so what you find with a lot of these younger filmmakers who emerged uh, in those decades is they were absorbing a lot of, in some cases, the techniques, in other cases, uh, perhaps the attitudes and the aesthetic approaches of some of their uh, mentors or their predecessors. But, you know, they were synthesizing. You know, they were actually approaching it uh, much more from a perspective of uh, either criticism or a certain self, an analytical uh, self-reflexivity. And so what you find is a whole range of kinds of works. You, you find all kinds of amalgams even, hybrids. In a way, it's very postmodern, even though it's still very modernist in a lot of its ambitions, uh, the kinds of films that are being made. Uh, but you have combinations of found footage and essay. Uh, with voiceover, you know, or storytelling um, in ways that you may not have had as in, in the 60s um, in much of that filmmaking. Uh, you have people blending different kinds of approaches. It's interesting um, to think back to when the first um, class um, in experimental filmmaking was made um, in relation to what Steve was just saying. Uh, who, what's his name? Douglas McKaigie, who was um, at the San Fran head of the San Francisco Art Institute, went to a screening of James Broughton's and Sidney Peterson's um, film in which the audience had a riot. You know, they just could not believe what they were seeing. This one of these very early attempts at personal expression, and in this, he had the vision to embrace that. The fact that people were reacting so uh, viscerally to uh, something negatively, to want to put that into the school. There wasn't a background to draw on, such as Steve was talking about, but rather they, they worked in a very surrealist, collaborative way, throwing in lots of ideas and then trying to make a group project together. No, we have not enough time for all of the stories. Let us go on. Maybe you will see yourself. So it's interesting to have the origins be in this moment of um, sort of rebellion and embracing it. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to both of you. And we'll have more details on hereinthecity.org and on our Facebook fan page about Radical Light. And that's it for Here in the City today. We'll be back next week with more radio realities from the urban landscape. Thanks to Luis Sierra Campos, Jesse Lerner, Sabiha Khan, Rachel Salmon for web production, and to D'Angelo for engineering the show. I'm Sarah Harris. Deadline LA is up next. Peace. Harrison with you, inviting you to join me both Monday and Tuesday as we'll be bringing you our 3 p.m. show on KPFK live from Sundance in Park City, Utah. We'll be bringing voices like Robert Redford, Harry Belafonte, Robert Kennedy Jr., and an entire panel.